If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. How is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? That's a great question asked by the famous Dr. Samuel Johnson, the English writer and lexicographer. That's how he put it in an anti-revolutionary pamphlet he wrote for the British government in 1775 entitled Taxation, No Tyranny. Welcome to episode 97 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is A History of American Slavery, Part 3, The American Revolution's Impact on Slavery. Now, I actually covered this topic a fair amount back in my American Revolution series, particularly in Part 5 of that series, which was episode number 62, I believe, the one in which I talked about how different groups of people ended up being either winners or losers as a result of the conflict and its outcome. And I'm going to try my best not to be too redundant here with what I said there, though there's obviously going to be some overlap because my understanding of the history hasn't changed very much. It's just been uh, added to with, with a lot of additional research in recent weeks and months about the history of slavery in America. And obviously, I realize I started it off with, I'm pretty sure, the quote that I read in that episode when I started talking about what happened to black Americans as a result of the American Revolution, that that same Samuel Johnson quote. And that's for a reason. It's because I think that the rhetorical question that Dr. Johnson raised is profound and strikes at one of the key inconsistencies of the American Revolution. But before I launch into the meat of today's episode, let me go ahead and give a Patreon shout out to Daniel. Thanks very much for stepping up to help out the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. Remember, those of you listening, there are many ways to support the show. Go to profcj.org slash donate to see a bunch of them. And one of the most helpful is to sign up to support this podcast on a per episode donation basis uh, via Patreon. And if you sign up for any amount per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I produce once you've signed up. And if you signed up for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly welcome and appreciated very much, but if you sign up for at least $1 per episode, you'll also have bonus uh, access to bonus content, bonus episodes that I put up there about every month to month and a half or so. Uh, the next one I'm planning on doing is related to what I'm covering now, but but distinct, and that is the history of the Haitian Revolution, which was a giant slave uprising that ultimately turned into a full-fledged revolution and has a lot of impact on slavery in America in, in a variety of ways. And it's just a, a tremendously interesting and, and very dramatic story as well. So look for that to be coming out probably 
in the next few weeks or so over there at patreon.com slash profcj for my Patreon supporting listeners. Now on to the show, I'm going to start off with several excerpts from primary sources, all of them from Massachusetts, various types of petitions from slaves in Massachusetts asking for freedom, asking for the governing authorities in Massachusetts to help their their cause, and doing so in language that was explicitly designed to appeal to supporters of the natural rights argument and the basic arguments that were already being set forth by groups such as the Sons of Liberty and various pamphleteers. The humble petition of many slaves living in the town of Boston and other towns in the province is this, namely that your excellency and honors and the honorable the representatives would be pleased to take their unhappy state and condition under your wise and just consideration. We desire to bless God, who loves mankind, who sent his son to die for their salvation, and who is no respecter of persons, that he hath lately put it into the hearts of multitudes on both sides of the water to bear our burdens, some of whom are men of great note and influence, who have pleaded our cause with arguments which we hope will have their weight with this honorable court. We presume not to dictate to your excellency and honors, being willing to rest our cause on your humanity and justice, yet would beg leave to say a word or two on the subject. Although some of the Negroes are vicious, who doubtless may be punished and restrained by the same laws which are in force against other of the king's subjects, there are many others of a quite different character, and who, if made free, would soon be able as well as willing to bear a part in the public charges." Many of them of good natural parts are discreet, sober, honest, and industrious. And may it not be said of many that they are virtuous and religious, although their condition is in itself so unfriendly to religion and every moral virtue except patience. How many of that number have there been and now are in this province who have had every day of their lives embittered with this most intolerable reflection that let their behavior be what it will, neither they nor their children to all generations shall ever be able to do or to possess and enjoy anything. No, not even life itself, but in a manner as the beasts that perish. We have no property. We have no wives no children, we have no city, no country, but we have a Father in heaven, and we are determined, as far as his grace shall enable us, and as far as our degraded contemptuous life will admit to keep all his commandments, especially will we be obedient to our masters, so long as God in his sovereign providence shall suffer us to be holden in bondage." Petition from a slave named Felix to the colonial government of Massachusetts, January 1773. We expect great things from men who have made such a noble stand against the designs of their fellow men to enslave them. We cannot but wish and hope, sir, that you will have the same grand object, we mean civil and religious liberty, in view in your next session. The divine spirit of freedom seems to fire every humane breast on this continent, except such as are bribed to assist in executing the execrable plan. We are very sensible that it would be highly detrimental to our present masters if we were allowed to demand all that of right belongs to us for past services. This we disclaim. Even the Spaniards, who have not those sublime ideas of freedom that Englishmen have, are conscious that they have no right to all the service of their fellow men, 
we mean the Africans, whom they have purchased with their money. Therefore, they allow them one day in a week to work for themselves, to enable them to earn money to purchase the residue of their time, which they have a right to demand in such portions as they are able to pay for, a due appraisement of their services being first made, which always stands at the purchase money. We do not pretend to dictate to you, sir, or to the Honorable Assembly of which you are a member. We acknowledge our obligations to you for what you have already done, but as the people of this province seem to be actuated by the principles of equity and justice, we cannot but expect your house will again take our deplorable case into serious consideration and give us that ample relief which, as men, we have a natural right to. But since the wise and righteous governor of the universe has permitted our fellow men to make us slaves, we bow in submission to him and determine to behave in such a manner as that we may have reason to expect the divine approbation of and assistance in our peaceable and lawful attempts to gain our freedom. We are willing to submit to such regulations and laws as may be made relative to us until we leave the province, which we determine to do as soon as we can from our joint labors procure money to transport ourselves to some part of the coast of Africa where we propose a settlement. Excerpt from A Petition of Four Slaves in Massachusetts, April 1773. The petition of a great number of blacks of this province who, by divine permission, are held in a state of slavery within the bowels of a free and Christian country, humbly showing that your petitioners apprehend we have in common with all other men a natural right in our freedoms without being deprived of them by our fellow men, as we are a freeborn people and have never forfeited this blessing by any compact or agreement whatever." But we were unjustly dragged by the cruel hand of power from our dearest friends and some of us stolen from the bosoms of our tender parents and from a populous, pleasant, and plentiful country and brought hither to be made slaves for life in a Christian land. Thus we are deprived of everything that hath a tendency to make life even tolerable. The endearing ties of husband and wife we are strangers to, for we are no longer man and wife than our masters or mistresses think proper. Our children are also taken from us by force and sent many miles from us where we seldom or ever see them again. They're to be made slaves of for life, which surnames is very short by reason of being dragged from their mother's breast. Thus our lives are embittered to us on these accounts. By our deplorable situation, we are rendered incapable of showing our obedience to Almighty God. How can a slave perform the duties of a husband to a wife or parent to his child? How can a husband leave master and work and cleave to his wife? How can the wife submit themselves to their husbands in all things? How can the child obey their parents in all things? How can the master be said to bear my burden when he bears me down with the half chains of slavery and oppression against my will? And how can we fulfill our part of duty to him whilst in this condition? And as we cannot serve our God as we ought whilst in this situation, neither can we reap an equal benefit from the laws of the land, which doth not justify, but condemn slavery. Or if there had been any law to hold us in bondage, we are humbly of the opinion there never was any to enslave our children for life when born in a free country. We therefore beg your excellency and honors will give this its due weight and consideration and that you will accordingly cause an act of the legislative to be passed that we may obtain our natural right, our freedoms, and our children be set at liberty. Petition from A Great Number of Blacks to Thomas Gage, May 1774. 
the petition of a great number of Negroes who are detained in a state of slavery in the bowels of a free and Christian country, humbly showing that your petitioners apprehend that they have in common with all other men a natural and unalienable right to that freedom which the great parent of the universe hath bestowed equally on all mankind, and which they have never forfeited by any compact or agreement whatever. But they were unjustly dragged by the cruel hand of power from their dearest friends, and some of them even torn from the embraces of their tender parents, from a populous, pleasant, and plentiful country, and in violation of the laws of nature and of nation, and in defiance of all the tender feelings of humanity, brought hither to be sold like beasts of burden, and like them condemned to slavery for life, among a people professing the mild religion of Jesus, a people not insensible to the sweets of rational freedom, nor without spirit to resent the unjust endeavors of others to reduce them to a state of bondage and subjection. Your honors need not to be informed that a life of slavery, like that of your petitioners, deprived of every social privilege, of everything requisite to render life even tolerable, is far worse than non-existence. In imitation of the laudable example of the good people of these states, your petitioners have long and patiently waited the event of petition after petition by them presented to the legislative body of this state, and cannot but with grief reflect that their success has been but too similar. They cannot but express their astonishment that it has never been considered that every principle from which America has acted in the course of her unhappy difficulties with Great Britain plead stronger than a thousand arguments in favor of your petitioners. They therefore humbly beseech your honors to give this petition its due weight and consideration and cause an act of the legislature to be passed, whereby they may be restored to the enjoyment of that freedom, which is the natural right of all men. And their children, who were born in this land of liberty, may not be held as slaves after they arrive at the age of 21 years." So may the inhabitants of this state, no longer chargeable with the inconsistency of acting themselves, the pan which they condemn and oppose in others, be prospered in their present glorious struggles for liberty, and have those blessings secured to them by heaven, of which benevolent minds cannot wish to deprive their fellow men. And your petitioners, as in duty bound, shall ever pray. Excerpt from Petition of a Great Number of Negroes to the Massachusetts House of Representatives, January 13, 1777. Now, these petitions that I just read you were all from Massachusetts between 1773 and 1777, and they illustrate that slaves were, in fact, definitely touched by the ideology and the rhetoric and the marketing of the American Revolution from very early on. And they show how at least slaves who were literate and were able to do things like draft up petitions of grievance express their desires for freedom very intelligently in the same way that they heard the white population around them doing so at the same time in basically a combination of Lockean natural rights and evangelical Christian language. Now, as the conflict wore on, some would cease asking for freedom and would pursue it through their own action voting with their feet in various ways, capitalizing on the chaos, the opportunity, the changes, the instability created by the Revolutionary War. It was also during the American Revolutionary era that, for the first time, the institution of slavery was harshly questioned and criticized in mainstream political discourse. Now, mostly in the North, of course, but also even in some areas of the South, especially the so-called Upper South, places like Virginia and Maryland. African-Americans, both slave and free, can be found 
all throughout the events of the American Revolution in a lot of different capacities and on both sides of the conflict. And the dramatic events of the war years had significant, though definitely complex, effects on issues of slavery and race in different geographical regions. One important point to stress to grasp what was going on during the Revolutionary War era that seems like an obvious point, but I think it's one that's still easy to miss in all the drama and details of the Revolutionary War, something that I never really pondered in this way until I read Ira Berlin, the author of Many Thousands Gone, clearly expressing it in this way, is as follows, quote, Slavery rested upon the unity of the planter class and its ability to mobilize the state and rally non-slaveholders to slavery's defense. But the American Revolution divided planters among patriots and loyalists and forced both to employ their slaves in ways that compromised the master's ability to invoke state authority. In many instances, the state, whether understood as the planters' former British overlords or their own representatives, turned against the master class, end quote. Now, this situation would provide opportunities for some slaves to, in different ways, try to enlarge their freedom, which they did with varying degrees of success. Understandably, slaves did not automatically sympathize with the rebel cause, with the so-called patriot cause, because of their situation and the fact of how many of, of the patriots who were the most eloquently expressing grievances against the British government were significant slaveholders. Instead, slaves seem to have looked at the conflict as a potential opportunity to improve their situation. And you can find them grasping the implications of the supposed ideology of the American Revolution on their own situation. For example, all the way back in 1765, during the Stamp Act crisis, a decade before fighting broke out in Lexington and Concord, a group of slaves in Charleston, South Carolina, began marching around the city chanting, Liberty, Liberty! And they had been inspired to do this by previous white protests of that sort against the Stamp Act. However, predictably, when black slaves were demonstrating for their liberty in almost the identical fashion to the way that uh, white Charlestonians had done so recently, it of course terrified a lot of Charleston's white population, particularly those who owned slaves. And you can find lots of other examples here and there of slaves clearly understanding the implications of revolutionary rhetoric. And like I said, you can find African Americans, both slave and free, all throughout the American Revolution. Famously, in 1770, the very first casualty of the Boston Massacre, what some people would characterize as the first American casualty of the Revolution, was in fact a man named Crispus Attucks, who was a man of African and Wampanoag Indian ancestry. Black Americans participated in many of the Revolution's earliest battles, including Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. And I mentioned a little bit of this in a previous Dangerous History podcast episode. And I mentioned some examples of this in my miniseries on the American Revolutionary War that I did a while back. I mentioned, for example, how a free black man named Salem Poor uh, distinguished himself in Bunker Hill with both his courage and his marksmanship. Now, when we look at both sides of the Revolutionary War, we find that both sides had very contradictory attitudes and resultant policies towards slaves during the war years. In trying to figure out the American discourse on race and slavery during these years, historian Peter Colchin points out the importance of Enlightenment thought in leading many people in America to question 
the institution of slavery, perhaps most obviously in the realm of natural rights, you know, the, the basic idea that individual human beings inalienably, inherently, etc., possess certain rights. And another related Enlightenment idea also associated with John Locke, and that is this concept of human beings being born tabula rasa, and that human beings are born essentially as a blank slate. I mean, obviously, there's a certain amount of inherited traits and so on, but that people are basically born a blank slate for the most part and are then molded by their environment and their experiences. This is an idea expressed by John Locke in his essay concerning human understanding. And while certainly not all Enlightenment philosophers would have agreed with him on it, it was quite influential in that intellectual milieu that we call the Enlightenment. And what this idea of human beings being born a blank slate and being molded by their environment and experiences, what it did in regards to slavery was to cause at least some people to question the old Aristotelian idea that I mentioned a couple episodes back, that some people are simply naturally born to be slaves. And once you start to think about John Locke's notion, that becomes more problematic, because if you believe the, Aristotle, the Aristotelian idea of the natural slave, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, or maybe that's not the best term, I don't know. But it's the idea that you look around you in your society, assuming you're in a slave society like ancient Greece or colonial America, and you see slaves, and you see most of them appearing to behave in a very subservient and dependent fashion, always needing to be supervised, always needing to be told what to do, always seeming to do this almost degrading deference to those in authority. And you conclude, well, that person that I'm watching behave in those, those fashions must be simply born to be that way. He is born to be a slave. He is born to take orders from others. Rather than the Lockean notion based on the, the idea of people being born a blank slate, which would be, no, that individual has simply been conditioned by having been a slave since either birth or if he's a, an import from Africa from whenever he was enslaved and, and shipped across the Atlantic, and that probably years of abuse and, and discipline and so on have caused him to adapt to the environment. You know, human nature, above all else, is malleable. People are like water that is poured into an, an into a container and then take on the shape of that container. You know, you want to know why the people of North Korea behave the way they do, that's why. And if you want to know why most slaves behaved in a very subservient and so on type of a manner most of the time, that's why, because they've adapted to their environment. So anyway, that was another notion from the Enlightenment and John Locke and all that that caused some people, at least during the American Revolutionary Era, to question slavery, because Aristotle's idea of the natural slave was a really important intellectual underpinning for slavery in the minds of sort of thinking men. Another thing that Colchin points out that's very important and is often overlooked, I don't, I don't know if Peter Colchin, what his political predilections are, but he seems to be at least a little bit more friendly to the free market than a lot of other scholars who write on slavery. And as Colchin points out, this is an interesting point, there was a growing understanding of economics in the late 18th century, including an understanding and appreciation of the free market, of you know, real capitalism, if by capitalism we mean voluntary exchanges and so on. And this was also something brought about by the Enlightenment, most famously associated with Adam Smith, though there were certainly many others who contributed to this. And this growing understanding of economics and markets 
also encourage the questioning of an even outright attack on slavery intellectually, because slavery ran contrary to the concept of a free labor market. And Colchin sums up this notion as follows, quote, Slavery lacked a basic ingredient of capitalism, the free hire of labor through mutual agreement of consenting parties. Substituting the physical coercion of the lash for the economic coercion of the marketplace, slavery thus did violence to the central values implicit in capitalist relations. The logic of belief in free trade and the freedom of the individual to succeed or fail on the basis of one's own efforts inexorably led to challenges to slavery's legitimacy, end quote. Interestingly, as Colchin notes, the first religious denomination to fully oppose slavery in America were in fact the Quakers, who were also some of the most entrepreneurial and commercial people in the Anglo-American world at this time. Now, one other element that you can find in the discourse of those who were at least questioning and in some cases outright attacking slavery during this time period is religion. America had been swept by the so-called Great Awakening, and a lot of Great Awakening preaching had an anti-hierarchy sort of an undertone to it, sometimes explicit, sometimes sort of implied, and things were were more emotional and evangelical uh, as a result of the Great Awakening in many denominations. And many of these evangelical denominations, number one, sought to convert slaves to Christianity and with increasing success, we're doing so. And in addition to that, many of these evangelical churches, even in the South at this time anyway, were open to questioning slavery as being a violation of certain religious tenets as they understood it. Now, unfortunately, in the South at least, this connection between evangelical religion and opposition to slavery won't last very long. It'll pretty much fizzle out by the early 19th century. But for a little while at least, there was this connection between this religious revivalism and questioning or even outright opposing slavery. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the British and their policies towards slaves in America during the Revolutionary Era. The British authorities used blacks for their war effort and probably would have done so on an even grander scale than they did if it were not for the resistance on the part of many wealthy loyalist slave owners to doing more of that sort of thing. In addition, they had to tread the fine line of they had these much more economically important colonies in the Caribbean, places such as Barbados, that made just astronomical sums of money off of producing sugar. And if they started to do things like free and empower slaves in North America on, on too grand of a scale in the name of then using them to suppress the revolution, if they started to do a lot of that. Not only would they alienate some North American loyalist slave owners, but they would also alienate a lot of very important Caribbean planters. And so they had to walk this fine line. You know, they were pragmatic enough that they were willing to offer at least some slaves their freedom in return for help in fighting the revolution, trying to suppress it. But political concerns prevented them from going as large scale as they otherwise could have. I'm going to mention briefly a very, very interesting and important thing. Just a few years prior to the real outbreak of revolutionary fighting, uh, in 1772, just three years before Lexington and Concord, was when the highest court in England ruled in a case known as Somerset v. Stuart that slaves from British colonies would become free if they were brought to England, to the mother country. This is a very famous case. In this case, 
Chief Justice Lord Mansfield ruled that, quote, The state of slavery is of such a nature that it is incapable of being introduced on any reasons, moral or political, but only by positive law, meaning statute, which preserves its force long after the reasons, occasions, and time itself from whence it was created is erased from memory. It is so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. Whatever inconveniences, therefore, may follow from the decision, I cannot say this case is allowed or approved by the law of England, and therefore the black must be discharged. So uh, a black slave, what had happened was a black slave had been brought to England and then had uh, managed to sue his master for his freedom, saying that, well, slavery is not legal in England. So this ruling said that, well, there's not actually a law on the books of England that, that says slavery is a legal institution, and without that being present, it can't be legal because it violates sort of basic natural and common law. So this ruling applied only to the mother country. It did not address any legality of slavery in the colonies of the British Empire, where, in fact, there were local statutes authorizing slavery in various ways. And despite that, despite the fact that this ruling didn't really target slavery out in the colonies in any direct sense, it still terrified many American slave owners who feared that eventually they looked at how much Britain was interfering with the colonies in the realm of taxes. And these slave owners, many of them Virginians who like to talk and write eloquently about liberty, they feared that eventually the British government might move from interfering with the colonies' uh, economic life to making moves against slavery itself in America. At about the same time that case was being decided and, and laying um, all these precedents, the British government blocked attempts by some colonies, such as Virginia, to stop the import of new slaves into their colony, which, by the way, was something mentioned by Thomas Jefferson in an early draft of the Declaration of Independence, a paragraph that didn't make it into the final draft, where he railed against the, the King of England for basically forcing Virginia to keep the slave trade going. So Americans in places like Virginia they had a weird perception. I mean, it's understandable given their perspective and what information they had. They had a weird perspective, though, that the British government is simultaneously pressuring them to import more and more slaves, while also seeming at the same time to have some sort of plans to use those slaves as a weapon against any American rebellion by promising those slaves their freedom in return for helping to suppress any resistance that might pop up. And of course, the later policies of people like Lord Dunmore in Virginia and some other British leaders and military commanders during the war lent support to these fears on the part of American Southerners that there was a, some sort of British grand strategy to use the slaves to reduce the freedom of white people. In fact, all the way back in January of 1775, one member of parliament called for freeing the slaves in any uh, colony that was giving the empire trouble. But this didn't catch on out of fear of what might happen, particularly in the Caribbean sugar islands, which, you know, were totally loyal. But what happens if you start making them very fearful about slavery? Might you push some of the Caribbean colonies into joining forces with the increasingly rebellious 13 North American colonies? A big turning point came in November 1775 in regard to British policies on slaves in North America when Virginia's royal governor, Lord Dunmore, 
proposed raising an army of 10,000 blacks to help crush the growing rebellion, and he promised to free slaves who would help him do so. He did manage to recruit nearly 1,000, though nowhere close to the 10,000 he hoped for, and he named them the Ethiopian Regiment. Kind of hilarious in light of the fact that there were probably no slaves in North America who were Ethiopian. When you know the geography of Africa and Ethiopia is way over to the east and the vast majority of slaves came from the west coast areas and and slightly inland western Africa. But anyway, you know, um, doesn't have to be accurate, right? But um, Lord Dunmore's plans didn't work out as planned. His forces were defeated at the Battle of Great Bridge by American quote-unquote, patriots. Now, Dunmore's kind of an interesting character from what I've read on him. He was himself still, by our standards at least today, rather a racist, typical British, uh, arrogant, elitist lord of the time. But he was pragmatic enough to understand the leverage that the slaves could give him in a place like Virginia against rebellious people. He, in fact, had no intention of any sort of blanket manumission or abolition. He was only offering freedom specifically to military-age male slaves who would actively help him crush resistance. But what happened was word of mouth spread among American slaves about what Lord Dunmore had proclaimed and what he was doing that um, really kind of whitewashed the whole thing and exaggerated it. And so, you know, the typical thing when rumors spread word of mouth, like the game telephone, right? So, Next thing you know, Lord Dunmore is being spoken of by American slaves as if he's this great patron and benefactor and liberator going to free them all and so on. And in fact, uh, interestingly, as the war dragged on, many slaves, in fact, came to believe the same thing about King George. Historian Alan Taylor sums this up as follows, quote, Slaves nurtured a wishful legend that the British king was their benevolent protector. As with peasant and enslaved peoples elsewhere, they had long believed that the monarch truly loved the lowly laborers. This tradition of the liberator king prepared southern slaves to fight for the British against their masters during the revolution, end quote. And of course, we have versions of that today, don't we? Especially here in the States where it's an election year, which really means it's like an election two years damn thing drags on so long. But you have the same thing where there's lots of people who are looking to current or future or prospective presidents as their great benefactors and liberators. And as in the case of Lord Dunmore and King George III, this is uh, a bit of an exaggeration and wishful thinking to make the understatement of the year. Nonetheless, though, based on this rumor in Virginia and many other southern states Slaves did run away at higher levels, in some cases uh, did join the British military forces either as soldiers or as sort of auxiliaries and, and irregulars and scouts or simply as laborers, you know, helping the army move supplies and who knows what. And as you might expect, American patriot slave owners were very, very put out by this. For example, in Virginia, American slave owners made examples of runaways they caught bearing arms during this time period. On some occasions, those who were caught in such a fashion, you know, AWOL and armed, were hanged and then decapitated, and then their heads would be placed on posts at crossroads in order to act as a warning to other slaves. So this is, this is where we're at. In 1770s, 1780s, in these circumstances, we're still at chop someone's head off and stick it on a post as a warning. 
Now, when the war really heated up in the South from about 1778 onward, the British army sought to use the slave population to their advantage there, understandably, you know, given the tactical situation. However, again, their actions were often very inconsistent because of other political considerations, especially the fact that many Tories in the South were very wealthy, large-scale slave owners. So on some occasions, they offered freedom to slaves owned by rebels who joined the British cause. On other occasions, British authorities confiscated slaves owned by rebels and then gave them or sold them to known loyalist slave owners. So... Certainly, the British did free some slaves as a byproduct of their American Revolutionary War campaigns, but it would be inaccurate to portray them as these principled abolitionists going around freeing slaves just because they wanted to free a ton of slaves. Ironically, given the fact that the British army was doing these sorts of things to try to strengthen their hand in the South, the number of slaves that they did free in the South seemed to have weakened their cause overall because such actions drove many slave-owning loyalists into ultimately, even though perhaps reluctantly, supporting the rebel or patriot cause. Historian David Bryan Davis describes the tightrope that British authorities had to walk in this as follows, quote, Britain when confronted by the rebellious American colonists, hoped to exploit their fear of slave revolts while also reassuring the large number of slaveholding loyalists and wealthy Caribbean planters and merchants that their slave property would be secure. Despite this contradictory approach, which could be as self-defeating as the patriot desire to resist British quote-unquote enslavement while defending racial slavery, the majority of American blacks probably hoped for a British victory, end quote, as did, by the way, the majority of the Native American tribes that were in close proximity to the 13 rebellious colonies, and for good reason. According to David Bryan Davis, the British invasion and ultimate withdrawal from the South during the latter years of the war caused a loss to the region's slave population of between 80 and 100,000. Thomas Jefferson personally had 30 of his slaves escape during General Cornwallis's campaign in Virginia in 1781. Now, not all of those who escaped got their freedom. Many died one way or another. Some who left with the British when the British withdrew from the South ended up after the war being slaves in the Caribbean. Some were freed, though to be fair, and the largest group of those who were freed were sent all the way up to Nova Scotia, where they faced apparently quite a bit of racial discrimination, though they were nominally free. And then a smaller group who got their freedom as a result of leaving with the British at the end of the American Revolutionary War, but still a group over a thousand strong, went to London, where they were barred from most types of employment and also were not legally eligible for the sort of early basic welfare state type programs that existed. So many of them later went to the colony of Sierra Leone in Africa. While the British policies towards slaves and slavery during the revolutionary era did lead to some American slaves getting some version of freedom, or at least some increase in freedom, it had the tragic and unintended consequence of probably increasing the overall commitment of the new independent American Republic to the defense of the institution of slavery. And in fact, the loss of the slaves during the war would lead to later increased pressure to reopen the transatlantic slave trade, especially in the Deep South. Now, I want to talk a little bit about 
the rebel or patriot policies towards slaves and also towards free blacks because these things are closely connected. Race and slavery obviously intertwined very much in colonial and and early American history in the antebellum period as well. Free blacks actually served in military units from every one of the 13 original states except, predictably and, and very tellingly, those of Georgia and South Carolina. Now, when it came to using slaves as soldiers, however, things were much more complicated even than just using free blacks. But there were some opportunities in some places for at least some slaves to gain their freedom in return for military service. For example, New York offered slaves their freedom in return for three years of military service, after which their owner would be compensated for the loss of his property with some land. And as the war dragged on, many of those on the side of independence, including even a fair number of Southerners, supported the idea of a larger scale program of offering slaves their freedom if they served in the Continental Army. And there was some precedence for arming slaves in an emergency. I mentioned this before, during the colonial period where, for example, in early South Carolina, trusted slaves were sometimes armed to help fight off Spanish and Indian attacks. And in many cases, especially if they performed well in the conflict, they could earn their freedom. But that was a very different era when things were less rigid and the categories of black and white, slave and free were were a bit more porous. Now, two things could potentially undermine the institution of slavery. One is if its profitability were to decline significantly, then people would be less supportive of it, less defensive about it. But the other realm is in the realm of ideology, of beliefs, of what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And looking at the American Revolution, it did not change the profitability of slavery, but it did, I don't know, amplify, maybe is the best word, certain ideologies that had the potential to undermine support for it. According to David Bryan Davis, the two most important ideological elements of revolutionary thought that undermined slavery, or potentially at least could undermine slavery, were first, quote, the ideals of liberty and equality associated with secular Republican principles, end quote, and second, quote, the evangelical religious emphasis on every person's ability to triumph over sin thanks to a capacity to receive divine grace based on the image of God within each human being, end quote. You can see that in the rhetoric of those white American leaders and writers who questioned and attacked slavery during this time period, and you can see the impact of those two areas also in cases where we have it in the words of the slaves themselves, and also of free blacks who were advocating for freedom for other blacks and also advocating for equal rights. While a few slaves were literate here and there, most were not, or only very minimally so at best, and yet one way or another, many of them heard the revolutionary rhetoric, and it seems to have clearly impacted them. For those that really resonated with it deeply, they went not just from wanting to no longer be a slave themselves as an individual, to opposing the entire institution existing at all for anybody. And again, they expressed their case in the cases where we have access to things that they said and wrote in very similar language to the white revolutionaries, namely the language of natural rights coming ultimately from God. And again, as we heard at the beginning of this episode, many slave petitions really harped on the Christian religion, no doubt due to the fact that this was a time 
that the slaves were really converting in mass to Christianity, and many of them, quite naturally, naturally and understandably, hoped that conversion might lead them to freedom. There was some precedence for this, for example, in some of the Spanish colonies. But a lot of white Americans, including even some who were quite radical in many other aspects, were very bothered by the implications of revolutionary rhetoric and ideology for slavery and for black rights. And it didn't matter that many people, such as those, for example, who wrote the petitions that I read at the beginning of this episode, were explicitly nonviolent. They still were terrifying to many members of the American elite at the time. David Bryan Davis writes, quote, Though such blacks disavowed the violent means whites were using to resist the British, white Americans became increasingly aware of the danger of a revolution within the revolution. End quote. Now, during the war, some Americans did ultimately come to sympathize with the plight of the slaves and to see the connections between the revolution's rhetoric on natural rights and the desire of slaves to be freed. Tragically, not a lot was done of substance in the big picture, at least at the time, but the historical record does clearly show that white Americans were not at all blind to the implications of their ideology on the issue of slavery. However, some, especially those who owned slaves, the war to them presented the possibility of some slaves acting as a so-called enemy within. But again, some at least said the right things, even though they weren't always able to accomplish politically on those, on those ideas. But even several founding fathers that I mostly don't like that much, such as Benjamin Rush and Alexander Hamilton, actually eloquently pointed out the hypocrisy of fighting for freedom while denying it to slaves. And Hamilton was actually one of many supporters of a measure designed to offer thousands of slaves from Georgia and South Carolina their freedom in return for military service during the war. Early in the war, George Washington, not surprisingly for a big-time Virginia slave owner, had discouraged even the serving of free blacks in the Continental Army, despite the fact that, like I said before, early in the war, many of them had served with distinction up in the fighting in New England. As the war rolled on, Connecticut and Rhode Island recruited enough black soldiers to form entire black military units, and Rhode Island actually offered several hundred slaves their freedom in return for service. But many considered the arming of blacks, including slaves, by 1778 as a real helpful thing to do despite, you know, the alarm it might cause or the potential dangers of doing so. In 1778, when one, manpower shortages were getting really bad in the Continental Army, and two, the British Army was at that time very badly conquering in Georgia and beginning to conquer into South Carolina and just mopping the floor with the Southern Continental Army at that time before Nathaniel Green went down there and kind of made it a decent force. Under those circumstances, many people reconsidered the concept of arming blacks, including slaves. And in this atmosphere, a proposal was put forth by a man named Isaac Huger, who was a general from South Carolina, and the proposal was to offer freedom to slaves in Georgia and South Carolina in return for military service. And the goal was to get 3,000 black soldiers to fight against the Redcoats. And as I mentioned in one of the revolutionary episodes a while back, this idea was supported by a man named Henry Lawrence, who was a member of the Continental Congress from, of all places, South Carolina. 
and his son, Colonel John Lawrence, who was an aide to George Washington and who apparently was one of the main people who persuaded Washington to change his mind on this idea and support it. Believe it or not, the Continental Congress unanimously supported this plan to arm and and use slaves as soldiers in return for giving them their freedom. But it was blocked from implementation by the governor and legislature of South Carolina, even though South Carolina was at that very time being invaded and conquered by a large British army, and the Southern Continental Army was seemingly almost at the breaking point. As David Bryan Davis puts it, quote, Despite the precedence of arming slaves in early colonial times, for many of the Carolinians, defeat and a return to British rule were preferable to a dependence on African or African-American soldiers, end quote. These opponents to using black slaves as soldiers understood the threat that such a precedent would pose to slavery in the long term, and they were simply not willing to allow it. Now, many years later, Confederate leaders are going to make the same decision, the decision that they'd rather risk losing the war than offer slaves freedom in exchange for military service. Now, in the case of the revolutionary generation, they still managed to win the conflict ultimately anyway, whereas the Confederates would, of course, ultimately lose. Historian Peter Colchin summarizes the ambivalent and contradictory effects of the War of Independence on slavery in America as follows, quote, Critics questioned its efficacy and morality, proponents rushed to its defense, and thousands of slaves took advantage of wartime turmoil to flee their bondage. Tangible results of this challenge included the abolition of slavery in the North, a sharp increase in the number of free blacks in the Upper South, and the ending of the African slave trade. Despite these developments, however, slavery in the southern states emerged from the agitation of the era largely unscathed. Indeed, for all the talk of natural rights, manumission, and and abolishing imports from Africa— the slave population of the new nation in 1810 was more than twice what it had been in the 1770s, end quote. I want to talk a little bit about what happened regarding slavery in the South post-independence, meaning like in the immediate couple of decades after the Revolutionary War. This is, of course, the most important part of the story of slavery because at the time of the American Revolution, about 90% of blacks in North America lived in the South, and the vast majority of those were slaves. Now, as many of you probably know, some of the more thoughtful revolutionary leaders from the South, especially those from the Upper South, men like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, for example, at least to some degree paid lip service to the obvious fact that owning slaves fundamentally violated key principles of liberty and natural rights. But some, including some prominent ones, were also seemingly blind and deaf to that fact, whether willfully or out of ignorance, who the hell knows. But I just wanted to share with you a a funny but tragic, I mean, just sad story. It's a story I'd never encountered before I recently started reading the book, The Internal Enemy, Slavery and War in Virginia, 1772 to 1832 by historian Alan Taylor. And the little anecdote is that during the lead up to the revolution, not, not long before it broke out, when there was you know, a lot of protesting and so on, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, Richard Henry Lee, the man who would later introduce the motion in the Congress calling for independence and an ancestor of Robert E. Lee, Richard Henry Lee actually had his slaves stage a protest against British taxes. He had his slaves march around a courthouse 
carrying banners that characterized these taxes that the British were trying to impose as, quote-unquote, chains of slavery. I mean, that's just, here's, a, here's a guy ordering his slaves to go protest on his behalf against taxes that he characterizes as slavery. I mean, it's just insane. As historian Alan Taylor says of this, masters like this, quote, had a very weak sense of irony, end quote. Yeah, quite, quite an understatement there. In the immediate aftermath of the war, there was some loosening of slavery in some ways in the Upper South. Not, not so much in the Lower South, not as much real change there. But there was this little trend for a while in the Upper South. So, for example, in the 1780s and 90s, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware all passed various laws, making it a lot easier for a master to grant manumission to a slave, just sort of on his own say-so. And many masters did, in fact, take advantage of those laws, either to set free a few favorite slaves or to free even most or all of their slaves. Most often when they were doing this, it would be done in their will uh, when they died, although in some cases not. Now, prior to the so-called Cotton Kingdom being established in the South in the 19th century, something we'll talk about probably uh, next episode or, or soon thereafter, there was a real trend, a real fad, you might call it, among at least some trendy Upper South slave owners to free at least some, in a few cases all, of their slaves. Also, in the immediate aftermath of the Revolution, there were growing evangelical denominations in the Upper South, primarily Baptists and Methodists, that at this time anyway, though later changed their tune a bit, were often critical of slavery on moral grounds, especially, like I mentioned before, since by this time period, most slaves, especially in the Upper South, had converted to Christianity. And this religious trend, no doubt, was adding fuel to this fad of freeing your slaves, of manumission. Unfortunately, later, these same denominations in the South would change their tune in the 19th century and would, in most cases, become staunch defenders of slavery. This, by the way, not coincidentally, is the same time that slavery was becoming increasingly profitable because of the coming of the so-called Cotton Kingdom. So, anyway, kind of a base superstructure argument there, I guess, but I think it's correct. Believe it or not, the Methodists in Virginia in the 1780s even lobbied to try to abolish slavery outright in the state, though obviously they failed. But again, there was this trend of a lot of certainly not most, but a strikingly high number of slave owners freeing some or even all of their slaves in the immediate aftermath of the Revolutionary War. It's a shame this trend didn't continue and become, you know, ultimately the extinction of slavery at the time, but at least it was something for some people. The man who has the distinction of freeing more slaves during this time period than anyone else was a man named Robert Carter, who as of 1790, owned over 500 slaves. Now, Robert Carter was long known as a bit of an eccentric and a bit of a religious radical, and he had joined an evangelical Baptist church whose congregation actually included some of his own slaves. And as a result of this, and apparently this church was preaching against slavery in 1791, Carter began freeing his slaves, by the way, to the dismay of his children, who, of course, saw his slaves as their inheritance. And Carter, what he would do is he would free a bunch of them each year. Uh, supposedly, he would free about 25 of them every year. And he kept doing so 
until every single one of his slaves, over 500, had been freed as of 1812. Carter's neighbors, like his children, denounced him in the case of his neighbors, not because it was hurting them financially, but they basically kind of said that he was setting a bad example and that his former slaves were also being a bad example uh, in their behavior to others who were still slaves in the area. And in fact, we can find many instances, especially in certain counties, where those who freed large numbers of slaves often faced social ostracism and other forms of social disapproval from their neighbors. And in a few cases, we have evidence of some planters freeing their slaves almost out of spite because they didn't like their neighbors and they kind of felt like, yeah, well, go ahead, you know, I'll free them all and and to hell with you if you don't like it. I like making you jerks unhappy. So as sort of an example of this, where we can see some spite in manumission, in June of 1796, a planter named Richard Randolph died young at the age of just 26, and his will set free 72 slaves, and not only set them free, but gave them 400 acres of land along the Potomac River to live on. Now, apparently Randolph knew how much his local society would disapprove of this action. By the way, no one else in his county freed any slaves during this entire time period. And in his will, he really seems to have relished it in some way. And again, kind of spite and so on. In the preamble to his will, Richard Randolph wrote that he hoped to, quote, make retribution as far as I am able to an unfortunate race of bondmen over whom my ancestors have usurped and exercised the most lawless and monstrous tyranny and in whom my countrymen by iniquitous laws, in contradiction of their own declaration of rights, and in violation of every sacred law of nature, of the inherent, inalienable, imprescribable rights of man, and of every principle of moral and political honesty, have vested me with absolute property. End quote. Now, as a result of this fad in Virginia after the Revolutionary War, the free b- black population, and the similar thing was going on on a smaller scale in places like Maryland and, and Delaware, which were you know much smaller states. As a result of this, the free black population of the Upper South grew rapidly in the first few decades following independence. But this trend unfortunately didn't last very long. It was pretty much over by about 1810. And even while it was going on, like I said, lots of people were very much against it. And you can see this reflected in some of the laws that were passed during this time period while this fad was going on. So, for example, Virginia passed a law that required newly freed blacks to leave the state or face being returned to slavery. Now, even though at least in the Upper South there was an increase in manumission and an increase in the free black population, still, as in most parts of the North, as we'll see in a moment, Southern states, in the years after the Revolution, passed a bunch of laws restricting the rights of free blacks. So, for example, Virginia barred free blacks from voting, from being jurors, from testifying in court against a white person, and from owning firearms unless they obtained a special permission from a county court. Free blacks in Virginia also had to register with a county court and obtain uh, paperwork, like a certificate, that said that they weren't slaves, which they then would have to show to slave patrols if they were you know, approached while traveling out in the countryside. So kind of an early version of gun control and kind of an early version of papers, please, you know, real ID, police state sort of stuff. Now, there wasn't nearly as much change and loosening on slavery in the the deep south as there was in the upper south. But whatever change and loosening and manumission trends and whatever um, did go on. And again, far from far from perfect, far from consistent. 
by the beginning of the 19th century, there's an increasing trend in every southern state in various ways to clamp down again on both the slaves themselves, have more control of them, and also on free blacks. And a major factor in causing the southern states to clamp down on slaves and on free blacks in the 1790s and in the early 19th century was the Haitian Revolution. This is something that to Americans today often gets overlooked, but to Americans living at the time when it happened, it was huge news. The impact of the slave uprising that ultimately turned into a revolution in Haiti around the turn of the 19th century, the impact of this on Southern minds and Southern politics in the antebellum period, especially the early antebellum period, is hard to overstate. It really is. And it's a dramatic hell of a story anyway on its own merits and just had a huge impact on American politics. And I probably mentioned this before a few times, but I plan on covering this story, the story of the Haitian Revolution in the near future as one of those Patreon bonus episodes to my Patreon supporters. And so this this Haitian Revolution had a huge impact. Abolitionists pointed to it as a danger of what could happen if slaves were kept in bondage. And they saw it as, see, that's why you should start phasing out slavery, because you can't keep people in that situation forever without a huge mass uprising eventually happening. But of course, Southern slave owners didn't see it that way. Instead, they typically saw the opposite. They saw the Haitian Revolution as an omen of what would happen if they gave blacks too much leeway. And they, they saw it as a reason to clamp down more on control. Now, before we finish up this episode, I want to talk a bit about how slavery was phased out in the North after independence. When the American Revolution began, slavery was a legally recognized form of property in all of the 13 original states. And yet, in the aftermath of the Revolution, the Northern states began to phase it out. This is where the Revolution and its ideology had the most direct and real impact on slavery in the North, where by one means, by one path or another, in some cases immediately and in most cases very gradually, slavery was phased out in the decades following the Revolution. Now, when the Revolutionary War ended, the escape rates of slaves in the North initially decreased, but then quickly resumed and in fact reached higher rates than during wartime, and we have evidence of this in various ways, including legal documents and uh, newspaper ads, you know, where, where slave owners would put kind of like wanted ads for their slaves, like, hey, be on the lookout for so-and-so, my escape slave. Escapes went down immediately after the war, but then jumped back up to all, all new highs. In most instances, because slavery was being fought out on a state-by-state basis, you know, how and when to end it was being fought out on a state-by-state basis at the time. In most instances, slavery was gradually abolished. Most commonly, what would happen is that a law would be passed saying that any slave born after a specific date would be freed upon reaching a specific age. And in some cases, freed slaves were made apprentices as well for some specific amount of time, almost like indentured servants. Now, some Northerners managed to sell their slaves to Southerners before they would be freed so as not to lose all of their investment. In some cases, there were laws to try and prevent this from happening, but it still went on. In 1777, Vermont became the first place in the New World to prohibit slavery explicitly, and it did so in its constitution. 
But at the time, though, Vermont was technically an independent republic and would not, in fact, be admitted as a U.S. state until 1791. Also, to be fair, there were very, very few slaves in Vermont there to begin with, so it wasn't as big of a deal for them as it would be elsewhere. In 1780, Pennsylvania was the first of the original 13 states to enact an emancipation program. They enacted a gradual one in a way that became the model for most of the rest of the original northern states. It actually didn't free anyone who was born before March 1st, 1780. And it declared that those who were born to slave parents from that date onward would only be freed upon reaching the age of 28. So... No one was freed by this law until 1808 at the earliest. And there was some legal room where where slave owners would try and work the system to keep their slaves in bondage and so on. They would do things like falsify birth dates, use other shady means to try and keep their slaves. In 1783, Massachusetts's state courts pronounced that slavery was inconsistent with the state's Declaration of Rights in its Constitution and basically stroke of a pen kind of thing. It was it was much more immediate than programs in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. In 1784, Connecticut and Rhode Island both passed gradual emancipation statutes very similar to that of Pennsylvania. One thing I'll mention at the level of the federal government that also had an impact on slavery in the North was the 1787 Northwest Ordinance, which prohibited slavery in Western territories, Western at this time meaning west of the crest of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, Western territories that were north of the Ohio River. So this is talking about the territories that would later become states like Ohio, like Illinois, like Michigan, etc. That that would mean that those places, as they became settled territories and then states, slavery was never allowed there, which is different from the original Northern states, you know, in the Northeast, where slavery was legal there for a while and then went away. By the way, there had been an earlier bill dealing with the Western Territories, drafted by Thomas Jefferson in 1784, that called for a ban on slavery in all of the territories west of the Appalachian Mountains, north and south, starting in the year 1800. This, of course, would have included such future slave states as Alabama and Tennessee and so on. But that version was defeated in the Continental Congress by a single vote. In the next few years... The other northern states which had had slavery followed suit as well in phasing it out. In 1799, New York, which, by the way, had the largest slave population of any northern state, passed a gradual emancipation program. And then in 1804, New Jersey was the last state north of the Mason-Dixon line to enact emancipation. And again, did so with a gradual program that worked itself out over many years. Believe it or not, When the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the amendment that abolished slavery throughout the United States, was ratified late in the Civil War in 1865, in New Jersey, when that amendment was ratified, there were still 16 legally owned slaves in the state who were freed by the 13th Amendment. By the way, New Jersey was one of the last northern states to ratify the 13th Amendment. Very interesting that even... During, right on up through the 13th Amendment, during the Civil War, there were still a small number of slaves legally owned in New Jersey. Still, however, gradually it was phased out in places that had previously existed up north. When you look at it the way that it's covered in many history textbooks, the phasing out of slavery in the north, where it's often covered in like a paragraph or two, this process 
of phasing out slavery after independence in the North seems like a pretty quick thing, but for the people who actually lived through it, remember, this is a process that literally unfolded over decades, right? So it certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have felt quick to those who were, you know, waiting to reach their 28th birthday or whatever to finally get their freedom. It was a gradual process. In fact, as late as 1810, there were still about 27,000 slaves who were owned north of the Mason-Dixon line. But as you would expect, given these gradual emancipation programs unfolding, the free black population of the North expanded drastically from well under a thousand at the start of the revolution to almost 50,000 by 1810. By 1830, there were still 17 slaves owned in Rhode Island, 25 in Connecticut, 403 in Pennsylvania, and over 2,000 in New Jersey, which, again, remember, still had a handful when the Civil War started. Now, I should point out that despite the fact that you know tens of thousands, ultimately, of slaves are getting their freedom up north, there were discriminatory laws against free blacks um, proliferating in most areas of the north at the same time that slavery was fading away. So in many jurisdictions in the north, free blacks were subject to things like special curfews, to restrictions on travel. Uh, they were, in, in most jurisdictions, not allowed to vote, to be on juries, to give testimony in court, etc. In other words, not that much different from a lot of the restrictions they face in the Upper South. And of course, they often faced informal discrimination that made it difficult for them to do things like get a job, um, acquire property, acquire education, etc. But that said, some managed to become successful in various capacities, despite all these obstacles. And the historical record shows that the number of black artisans increased gradually through a combination of skilled slaves obtaining their freedom and also free blacks who initially lacked skills beginning to learn and acquire and refine skills. Some became not just skilled artisans, but successful entrepreneurs. One of the most successful black entrepreneurs from this time period that I know of was a Philadelphian named James Fortin. And I'm going to go ahead and do kind of like a mini DHP heroes featurette on him right here, because I, I think he's a pretty cool guy, pretty cool historical character. James Fortin was born free in Philadelphia in 1766 and apprenticed in sail making. Eventually, he took over the business of his boss when his boss retired, and he also developed his own improved equipment for making sales and really built this sail making business to a major concern that ultimately employed over 30 workers, both white and black. By the 1830s, Fortin's net worth adjusted for inflation made him a multimillionaire. After becoming a successful businessman, he got heavily involved in the abolitionist cause and eventually became vice president of the leading American abolitionist society, William Lloyd Garrison's American Anti-Slavery Society. Fortin was an outspoken opponent of the so-called colonization movement, which was prominent among many white American politicians for a while in the early antebellum period. Colonization was an idea, I'll probably mention it more later in a future episode in this series, but it was the idea that slavery should be ended, but blacks need to get out of America and need to be shipped back to Africa. This idea appealed to a lot of members of the elite in American politics, but Fortin made the case that, look, these black people have been living in America in many cases for 
many generations, um, in some cases for well over a century by this time period. So they're not exactly African anymore, and um, they should have just as much right to stay in America as anybody else. James Fortin also persuaded William Lloyd Garrison to oppose this so-called colonization movement as well. And uh, Fortin helped set up and run the American Anti-Slavery Society's newspaper, The Liberator. When he died in 1842, his funeral in Philadelphia was attended by thousands of people, both black and white. And to me, he's a great example of someone who not only was a successful entrepreneur, but then also used his wealth for some genuinely positive causes. Now, when it comes to African-American history, one hears a lot about prominent political activists. And to a lesser extent, you'll hear about prominent African-Americans in the arts. But it seems like you don't hear nearly as often about the many great black entrepreneurs there have been in American history. And I think they deserve more coverage. And I'll link to at least one good article that I know of that mentions a bunch of them. And the very first one on the list is, of course, James Fortin. So yeah, some free blacks in the North did do well. Others did not. Some even ended up living in the same uh, home with their master, even after getting freed because they had no other options or there was some other kind of reason. Uh, many found that the, the new discriminatory laws being passed against them were oppressive and so on. But we should note that as imperfect as their freedom was in most areas of the North during this time period, as infringed as many of their rights were, there's no significant evidence that any of them longed to go back to being slaves. And in fact, there's quite a mountain of evidence to the contrary, such as instances of those who still remained in bondage to do everything they possibly could to buy or to otherwise get their freedom. Now, as I wrap up here, I want to point out something that I think at least is quite interesting. The American Revolutionary Era was not the last time that significant numbers of slaves would free toward British military forces during wartime in an effort to gain their freedom. In fact, according to historian Alan Taylor in the book I mentioned before, The Internal Enemy, over 3,000 slaves from Maryland and Virginia escaped to British warships in order to try and get their freedom in the Chesapeake Bay region during the War of 1812. We are not often told about that in American history books, and many people just don't want to face the fact. But the truth is that many times throughout American history, one finds various people desperately fleeing the so-called land of the free. Yeah, there's lots of instances of people trying to escape to here from worse places, but there's also places, there's also a lot of instances of particular groups of people running like hell to get away from the land of the free in order to get their freedom. It didn't just start with Edward Snowden fleeing to Russia after exposing government misdeeds. You find lots of other examples of this. You can find slaves from Georgia fleeing to Spanish Florida before the U.S. acquired Florida. Later in the antebellum period, you can find slaves fleeing ultimately towards Canada because the U.S. Constitution's Fugitive Slave Clause and the federal government's fugitive slave law meant that escaped slaves wouldn't be fully safe and secure if they simply made it to a northern state. They had to make it all the way to Canada. Or look at later in the 19th century, Indians out west fleeing from places like the Dakotas and Oregon for Canada in order to get sanctuary. And of course, what I just mentioned, the fleeing of Chesapeake slaves to British forces to get their freedom during the War of 1812. This is how historian Winthrop Jordan 
summed up the effect of the American Revolution and its aftermath on race and slavery in his book, White Over Black, American Attitudes Towards the Negro. Quote, Shortly after the Revolution, Americans began haphazardly, but with detectable acceleration, to legislate Negroes into an ever-shrinking corner of the American community. For ten years after the war, there were some signs of relaxation. But then came a trend which included tighter restrictions upon slaves, and especially free Negroes, separation of the races at places of social gathering, and the founding of all Negro churches. The American interracial mold was hardening into its familiar antebellum shape. End quote. In kind of a similar way, I personally would sum up the American Revolution's relationship to slavery in much the same way I'd sum up a lot of American history with two words squandered potential. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.